Professors FM. You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Camilla Nord, who runs the Mental Health Neuroscience Lab at Cambridge University. I guess I'm supposed to say University of Cambridge, right? And is also the author of this book called The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health. Welcome, Camilla. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Now, I really like this book, I mean, in part because I'm an economist, and so I tend to think in terms of equilibrium models. And your book, it pushes this idea of kind of homeostasis in the mental world to some degree. And you emphasize that the brain is really, it's an information processing system, which is continuously reevaluating the environment, right? For both opportunities and threats. And I guess mental health is the kind of evaluation system, right? The updating process that we find desirable. <laughs> you know, mental ill health is a learning or updating or appraisal process, which we find defective. And so digging into that, that system of understanding the world is really what you're all about and trying to figure out how we can make that interpretation of the world more aligned with what we view as mental health is what these interventions are all about. Now, I mean, I find this way of looking at things extremely intuitive, but I think your, your point is that it's taken a while to compile all of the little pieces, right? And we needed to have some understanding of the neurological mechanisms that kind of drive this system of learning before we could really feel confident that this is a good way to, to think about mental health. Is that right? I mean, could we have come up with a similar model with just a kind of behavioralist approach to the world? I suppose the way I've conceptualized mental health in my book is very old because it builds off this kind of bodily homeostasis idea, the idea that there's this kind of continual updating. But what the brain does, not uniquely from the body, but perhaps distinctly and very crucially for the brain, is this predictive homeostasis, anticipating potential disruptions to that balance and preemptively doing things to make sure that the balance isn't disrupted. Now, sometimes that balance is at the core of our survival, something like if we're hungry, our brain does various things to make sure that we aren't starving in as much as we can for thirsty and so on. But these same natural survival biological drives are really exploited for us to do much more sophisticated things, figure out what makes us happy, figure out what makes us miserable. And I think that kind of, that learning process that sits on this very old kind of homeostatic balance process is 
you know, a newer perspective or perhaps a, a, a new way of stating things you might have an intuitive understanding of about mental health. And I think what my book really goes into is all of the ingredients of that balance, whether that's learning about events that have happened in the environment, detecting events that have happened in your internal environment, in your body, and how those facets of our experience shape our mental health. Right. And so it, it does have roots then in sort of a Galenic right, view of health or an Aristotelian kind of view of health by emphasizing this idea of balance. It does also in emphasizing the physical aspect of mental health. This is, it's unpopular in some quarters. The idea that physical and mental health is sort of one singular entity. The idea that something biological could explain something that feels so personal. I, I think sometimes it's not intuitive, that idea, but it is very old. The idea that physical aspects of our body contribute and actually are essential to our mental state and physical things happening in our brain are equal to our mental state, that manifests, that creates our mental state. That's an old idea. It just hasn't been adopted by everyone. Well, yeah, there's this distinction between kind of neurology and psychology, right? I mean, it's kind of like psychology is the part of the mind that, that hasn't yet been <laughs> right figured out physiologically. I mean, is it kind of like a residual? I mean, do you imagine that the- That's often how it's operationally defined. It's actually enormously frustrating. If you look at the history of psychiatry, lots of conditions that are now considered neurological conditions, because we understand to some degree their physiological basis, something like epilepsy, were not long ago called psychiatric conditions because we didn't. And it's sort of like every time we understand the basis of a brain disorder, it gets sucked up into a different category, into this neurology category, when in reality, these are all brain disorders that we have a better or worse understanding of the origin for. And often we know less about neurological disorders than people might think, and we might know more about psychiatric disorders than people might think, but they are all disruptions happening in the brain. Now, in the book, at the very beginning of the book, right, you talk about things like hedonia and eudaimonia, and these are old concepts. It, economists tend to conflate them, and, and, and they get a lot of criticism for that. But I think you're arguing that, that these two things are very correlated. And should we be thinking about maximizing those things or should we be thinking about maximizing mental health? Are they the same? I mean, the optimal amount of pleasure and happiness presumably is not the maximum, right? I mean, we do need to kind of mix in some kind of negative affect, right, in order to be healthy. It's interesting because I don't know if we need to. I just think that's what happens. So I think it's not something someone should have to try to do. I just think that that's life. No matter how much hedonia you're lucky to experience, you will always have periods of negative affect. And I suppose the way that I think about it is maybe there has been an overemphasis on this idea that kind of tiny little instances of pleasure, that's unimportant. That's separate from your overall estimate of your life. They're very highly correlated. And why wouldn't they be? Because the way that we estimate our overall states, we know this from very many studies, is 
partly an accumulation of those individual reward experiences, depending on the context. So one of the chapters in my book is about learning and how people's updated estimates of how happy they feel doesn't have to do with overall how many positive outcomes they've had, but how positive those outcomes were relative to what they were expecting. This positive prediction error idea. Yeah. So then some would say mental health would mean that you have a kind of more accurate, right, view of the world. Does it make sense to talk about accuracy when when we're talking about learning, right? So being able to predict with some degree of accuracy whether or not something's going to be a positive or a negative experience or whether you're going to receive a reward or a punishment. Is that how we should think about health? For a long time, there was a, the answer to that would have been yes. It was very popular to look at mental health as a kind of deviation from the optimal, deviation from the norm. You're worse at this. You're worse at emotion regulation. You're worse at, you know, and, and I think that was somewhat of a red herring. Sometimes there are genuine problems, cognitive deficits, you know, worse memory, worse attention, things that really affect people's everyday life. And people are genuinely worse on some domains when they're suffering specific mental health disorders. But they're also sometimes better at other things. There are really interesting instances of um, people with schizophrenia performing particularly well on certain types of perceptual paradigms, same in autistic people. So I think this kind of like accurate, inaccurate paradigm is quite limited. I think it's a shifted representation of the world that some might say, some arguments, especially coming from sort of emotion researchers, argue that it's accurate for the specific experiences that you've had, like for your specific context, you might have developed an accurate model of the world, but perhaps your context was limited. And so you didn't unlearn those particular facets to then relearn and engage with other settings, other contexts. So that's one argument where it it might even be fully normal. I suppose I sit somewhere in between where I think you can describe something as a, someone could experience cognitive deficits, true impairments in their ability to learn about things or predict things, but they might also experience not deficits, but differences. And that might shift their ability, maybe make them better at learning from some events compared to others. And these are underpinned by neural differences. For example, in the dopaminergic system, in the serotonergic system, these are brain chemicals that are manipulating how we learn about the world. So I teach a course on data science and we talk about confusion matrices, right? False positives and and false negatives. And then we talk about cost matrices, like the cost of a false positive and the cost of a false negative. So, I mean, should we think about, for instance, people with these fears and and anxieties? Should we think of them as people who overestimate the probability of a negative or adverse event? Or is it that they kind of have, they attach a very high cost, right, to these negative events? And should we be, if we're trying to- That's an empirical question. And there's evidence for both. There's evidence for both explanations. So I think- it's very compelling to think there's this kind of overprediction of negative events, and there's some data to support that when people are making explicit or even kind of implicit based on their behavior predictions of what's going to happen. You do see a kind of overprediction of a potential negative event. But you can also see 
when learning about events, a kind of overlearning about negative events that have happened, a sort of additional sensitivity to prior events, maybe even when prior events are unpredictable, thinking that they're more predictable than they are, sort of attaching a sort of a smaller confidence interval, a tighter precision than you should to those events. So yeah, I think both explanations have value and they might even, like this is my personal view, but for a long time we've been like, is it this, is it that in this one condition? And it's been a little bit unproductive because things don't always replicate and we show it in some subsamples and not others. And the reason for that is because a disorder like say an anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety is a mess. Many, many different people with the same disorder experience radically different symptoms. So why would we assume that a single underlying mechanism, like an overprediction of negative future events, is the case in everyone? It's much more sensible to think that might be the cause of symptoms in some people, but that there might be other mechanisms really driving symptoms in other people. Yeah, and, and what I like is that you say that every person comes to the world with a different interpretive framework and that these interpretive frameworks are, are somewhat malleable. I did an interview with Amy Edmondson and, and she described this experiment that she does in her classroom where she has like this checkerboard and the students have to get from one end of the checkerboard to the other. Are you familiar with this one? And they have to navigate the path. And of course there's a square that is part of the path and a square that's not part of the path. And when the students step on a square that's part of the path, they get really excited and happy. And when they step on the one that's not part of the path, they get very upset, but they both have the same amount of informational value. And so she argues that when you fully convince someone that they have the same amount of informational value, then their hesitation to get the negative information kind of recedes or goes away. I mean, is that in a nutshell sort of how we can improve our mental health by reevaluating the valence of these different pieces of information to some degree? Yeah, I think there's a value in reevaluating them. I also think there's a value in kind of information acquisition that gets overlooked. So the idea that of explore and exploit, that actually we need to gather information in order to relearn things that we might have incorrectly learned about the world. So in order to do any kind of updating, any kind of tweaking our model of the world to be better and more applicable to our current context, we need to be exploiting, we need to be testing that model, putting ourselves in scenarios that we maybe thought we should avoid, but just in case we want to test it. And I think that kind of exploration aspect can be really useful across different disorders. This this often, often happens in different types of psychological therapy. People might be, you know, nudged to put themselves in situations that they were formerly avoidant of, for example, in social anxiety disorder. And I think this is one of the ways in which that can work because it forces you to explore, forces you to gather more information, figure out, test whether your predictions of what will happen are faulty. This is the idea behind exposure therapy, right? So you think, oh my gosh, that spider is going to kill me. And then the more harmless spiders you get exposed to, then the less you fear them, right? Yeah, exactly. And exposure therapy is a really interesting example of one where we have a much better understanding of the biology of that therapy than some other therapies. So we understand the, the learning mechanisms, the role of certain kinds of neuroplastic mechanisms in that therapy. And for that reason, 
It's actually come from animal science because we're able to capitulate the bare bones of exposure therapy in animals. But for that reason, we even know drugs that might enhance it. So a drug you could deliver acutely during an exposure therapy session that might improve the effectiveness of that exposure therapy. There are a number of clinical trials suggesting a couple different drugs for that purpose, which I think is very exciting. It's a kind of new pathway rather than like, should we treat mental health disorders with long-term drugs or long-term therapy? It's actually looking at a short-term combination of both based on neuroscience. It's really mechanistic. I love it. These huge overlaps between these phobias and immunological reactions, right? So the way in which you would treat allergies would sometimes involve exposure therapy. I mean, should we be thinking about the physiological process of the immune system in the same way that we think about the kind of attraction repulsion response that we have to the external environment? I mean, are these, is, are they similar mechanisms of information processing and learning? That's a really interesting suggestion. I think it's incredibly useful to be thinking about these immune mechanisms, but I've always thought of it in a slightly different way, where actually these physiological responses are often part and parcel of our mental health responses to a situation. So when, for example, you experience something really stressful, that is an immunological situation. You have an increased inflammatory response. You see these pro-inflammatory cytokines in the blood. It's a physical response. So in fact, I think looking at immunological mechanisms of different kinds of exposure interventions isn't just metaphorically similar, but might even literally have some biological commonalities. Right. So if you believe that you're in danger, your inflammatory system gears up, right, in anticipation of some injury or some exposure to a disease or a toxin or something like that, right? And you talk about how disgust also works in this way, right? So if someone tells you that something is poisonous, right? I mean, you're going to vomit, right? It's what you believe about the world that induces this physiological response. Yes. Yes. I'll come on to disgust in a second, but it reminds me actually of this super cool study from a year or so ago where just by stimulating cells in one bit of the brain in rats who had previously had an inflammatory response that then activated these cells, they just, they got better from the inflammatory response, they stimulated these cells, and that recapitulated the inflammatory response in the body. So just a change of the brain can manifest these physiological changes in the body, which I think is such an incredible demonstration of how events happening mentally, i.e. biologically in the brain, can change you physically, physiologically, immunologically. And then when it comes to disgust, I think disgust is this beautiful example of a really old evolutionary emotion that's come about because we need to learn what to avoid so that we don't get poisoned or exposed to all kinds of gross things. And I think that need to survive, it could just be, we could have just avoided it. But for some reason, we have acquired this visceral, emotional, affective, salient response to that thing to make sure that we avoid it. It wouldn't be enough to just not prefer it compared to other things the way you have many things you might not prefer. We had to have this 
hugely negative response to it. And in my work, in my lab's work, we show that one part of that avoidance comes directly from the gut, comes from responses in our stomach, dysregulated gastric signals, which is what happens when we're nauseous. They happen a little bit when we're disgusted. And when you reduce them, as we've done with a drug intervention, you then have people who are slightly less avoidant of disgusting things. Right, so there's a two-way feedback mechanism where your beliefs about the world can induce a physiological response, but then the physiological response can then lead to right, an interpretation of things. So inflammation and mental illness, you you show that they're related, but the direction of causality doesn't seem to be unidirectional. Yes, I agree that it's not unidirectional. I like inflammation as an example of kind of the bodily basis of mental illness, because I do think it's causally related. It's just not unidirectionally causally related. I think that's different from some other things where we're still awaiting causal evidence. For example, with the microbiome, fascinating literature. I'm really interested in it. I'm, you know, it's not what my lab works on, but it's closely related. But I think we're still to a large degree awaiting causal evidence for the role of the microbiome, that there isn't just a correlation between someone's microbiome and whether or not they have a mental health problem, which could arise for many different reasons. In the case of inflammation, that correlation exists, but so too does causal evidence in humans, where if you disrupt the immune system, it can have mental health consequences via changes in the brain. And then I think it's incredibly sensible to think the opposite is true too. So people undergoing more stressful situations, more sensitive to stress, will also show greater disruptions in their immune system. Well, I like how you go through a lot of different examples of how we in our everyday lives are trying to interpret, right, what it is that we're feeling. Like, we, we don't know. I mean, you think intuitively that if you have a feeling, right, you should have some privileged access to what it is that you're feeling. And use the example of being hangry, right? So you have this feeling and you think, oh man, somebody's really wronging me when in fact it just means that you haven't eaten in a while, right? And if you really focused on that, if somebody reminds you, hey, you haven't eaten in a while, then your anger towards other people will recede somewhat, right? So, I mean, is therapy to some degree about helping people to maybe reflect on their interpretations of their physiological experiences and maybe come up with better frameworks for understanding what they're feeling? Yeah, I think sometimes some therapies do that, focusing purely on kind of emotion experiences and trying to reinterpret them based on the context. Well, maybe you felt angry, but it was actually because you felt threatened or afraid in different ways. And that's very helpful. But I suppose my book would argue for going one level simpler, one level below that, and looking, as you suggest, at our feeling responses to physical changes in the body and how sometimes, so for example, people who experience panic attacks might interpret increases in heart rate, increases in breathing as something threatening. For example, a panic attack or a heart attack or some other kind of immense physical disruption. But there are ways and means of exposing people to those same physical disruptions. Even something like exercise is a way of exposing you to a physiological disruption that is a little bit like feeling extremely anxious. And if someone could begin to learn, oh, this same physiological state has different causes, can have different causes, and can have different solutions. 
it can often give someone access into reinterpreting that, building a new context for it, a safer context for it that is a lot less unpleasant. Yeah, you recount those experiments where they injected people with adrenaline (laughs) without telling them. And it sounded like you wished you could still do these kinds of experiments and get them past the the IRB. Those experiments have their flaws. They were incredibly informative at the time. They've been challenging to replicate for different reasons. But what they do tell us is that interpretation matters when it comes to knowing what your physiological state means. It probably doesn't matter quite as much as the experiment suggested, where you could literally interpret it as anything. There are more constraints than they thought. But they're still not full constraints. There still are, of course, these huge changes in how people interpret physiological changes. And there are modern versions of those experiments. So I agree, you'd be hard-pressed to get that past an ethics committee in 2024. But there's excellent work coming from the lab of Sahib Khalsa and elsewhere in the US, where they are also causing physiological disruptions with injection of a slightly different drug and looking at people's neural responses to that and how that maps on to generalized anxiety disorder and other conditions. Right. But those studies seem to suggest that emotional contagion is also partially, I don't know, interpretation contagion, right? So if you're feeling anxious and you're trying to figure out like, why am I anxious? Well, when people suggest interpretations to you and they say, well, okay, you're anxious because of immigration or whatever. And they say, oh yeah, okay, that's it, right? So people, these mental, I won't call them illnesses, but interpretive schemas, they're a product of thought and so can be infectious to some degree, right? I agree with you on that. And I'm probably going to be a little more radical here and say, I think the same is true of physical symptoms. Like how many times did you think you had COVID in April, 2020? Many times, probably. And in fact, actually, you probably didn't at that exact time because you were probably in some kind of lockdown and not having much contact with people. So I think our schemas about the world radically change our interpretation of all of our physical and mental experiences. So it might make you, for example, attribute certain mental experiences to having a disorder because you became, you acquired understanding about the existence of that disorder. You started to know other people with the disorder. You started to realize, oh, this is an explanation for my particular thought patterns. Maybe you sought help along those lines. Perhaps you attributed the wrong source to a number of physical disruptions. We all do this all the time. You have a certain symptom, a group of symptoms. You read about it on the internet. You go, oh, it could be this more concerning thing. Perhaps you start to like precipitate other symptoms. You start to expect them. This is a natural process that the brain does, tries to explain its experiences, internal, external. Yeah, it reminded me that I, I did another interview on a sense of smell. And so they would do these cool experiments where they would expose people to a smell. And if they were primed to think it was Parmesan cheese, they were like, oh, this is great. And if they're primed to think it was feces, they're like, oh, it's awful. But because both of them have apparently the same chemical in them, but no one really quite knows what they are without the aid of some other cues, right? I mean, is that kind of... That's fascinating. is, Is that how we go through the world? You talk about pain in particular, and there's nothing as primary as pain, but but pain also is something that results from our interpretation of physiological experience, right? To some degree? Yeah. I mean, I, I like the segue from Parmesan cheese to pain. I suppose what I think, what's common with that experiment and my view of pain is that in my view, this 
powerful mechanism in the brain is our prior expectations, our kind of Bayesian priors, in a sense. And the precision of those priors, how tightly, how confidently we think something's going to happen, our ability to update those based on information. And that's what can maintain chronic pain is because when you have external painful input over time, of course, you begin to expect pain. Your belief state about the world just incorporates pain. And this is a, a physical process that happens in the brain, but it begins to be maintained by these circuits that are closer probably to depression circuits than they are to nociception, immediate pain circuits. It's not to say pain and depression are the same thing, but they're both maintained by these expectation-dependent, emotion-dependent circuits. And so they can be, that's one of the reasons why placebos might work, right? Because they disrupt one's expectations, right? So if you actually believe that your pain will go down, then your pain is potentially going to go down. Yes. It's why placebos work. It's why no matter what drug you take for any condition ever, the placebo effect is probably helping you because your perception of your symptoms, which will be added on to whatever else is causing your symptoms, will be malleable via that placebo effect. I think it's a kind of something that we use, something that we harness all the time, unbeknownst, right? Yeah. I mean, even things like being hungry or tired. I remember my father developed Alzheimer's and he would eat every hour or so because he forgot that he had eaten, right? So he didn't know whether he was hungry or not. He, and he forgot to look at the clock. But I mean, I do that all the time. I say, am I hungry? Well, I just ate. I can't be hungry. It's got to be something else, right? Is Even things like hunger and, and fatigue, it's odd that we shouldn't know them in some primary way. Yeah, that's really interesting, uh, especially the fact that your father wasn't able to look inside and figure out if he was hungry or not. There are big differences in this. It's interoception, the sense of the internal condition of the body. And like extraception, vision, audition, we have differences in how well we can see or hear. We also have differences in how well we can access these internal bodily signals. So some people, for example, are very good at detecting when their heart beats, every time it beats. Some people are terrible at it. And when it comes to hunger, some people are very good at telling you when they're hungry, when they're full, how full they are, and some people are less so. And it's not like with the disorders. It's not necessarily good or bad to be good or bad at this. It's mixed. It depends to what degree those signals disrupt your day. To what degree does you, do you misinterpret those signals because you haven't learn from them in other contexts. So it, it depends. It can be a negative thing to not have that access to internal bodily signals. It can be a blessing if it means they're not disrupting you, bothering you, making you anxious in the way they might for some people. Right. But just as with other things, I mean, the optimal amount of pain is not zero, right? There are people that have the inability to experience pain and their lives are pretty miserable, right? Yeah. I think if you asked people who experience pain, they would say the optimal amount of pain is zero. But that's because we forget just how much we've learned about the world through pain. So if you look at a toddler, a toddler is in pain at some point every single day. And that's how they learn what things not to do so that they don't injure themselves, so they don't walk into a table, so they catch themselves when they fall over and don't just smash their face. So they adapt to the world 
they fit themselves in the world partially via those painful experiences. Now, one of the key characters in your book is dopamine, right? I mean, we still don't really quite understand all of the complexity of dopamine, but you talk about its role in, in learning, but you also talk about the role in motivation. Do we think about motivation enough when we are discussing mental health, right? Because when people are depressed, they lack motivation, right? They don't seem to want to do anything. And it's because they- Absolutely. Yeah. I think we neglect motivation in mental health. Is it because they don't anticipate that anything they do will be pleasurable? Or is it something in addition to that? There seem to be multiple components contributing to low states of motivation, which you see in depression, but you also see in other conditions. So one thing I should say is that a kind of hidden agenda in my book is really unmasking dopamine. I think there are a lot of myths about what dopamine is in popular culture. I think often one assumption is that dopamine just feels good. And whenever you experience something that kind of feels good, that must be dopamine. That's actually a mischaracterization of dopamine. It's probably actually talking about the opioid system there. In my chapter on pain and pleasure, it comes a lot closer to those endogenous opioids that we get in our brain, endorphins from things that actually make us feel good. Dopamine, what it really is closer to is when you want something, when you're motivated to get something. And then it also is, of course, involved in how you learn about that thing. So it has a, a couple different functions, different roles in the brain. But the motivational role of dopamine is a really fascinating one because it means you could be motivated to get something that isn't even necessarily pleasurable, which is an example that I belabor quite a lot in my book, these intracranial self-stimulation studies, really gory experiments that were done in animals and in humans many years ago. And the dopamine system is underpinning that kind of that irresistible drive to acquire something, which can sometimes be independent of how much you actually like it. Yeah. So this is the difference between kind of wanting and liking, right? But the original folks who did the work, right? Like Olds and Milner, right? These guys, they didn't make that distinction. They conflated wanting and, and liking, did they? Yes. It's a more modern distinction. At the time, it was, yes, they were both kind of one. Motivation to get something was then interpreted simultaneously as being the basis for pleasure. And then it was later worked by people like Berridge and others who've dissociated these two. And they really do seem dissociable on many levels, symptom level, on the neurochemical level, brain regions involved in it. So I certainly agree that it was an advance to distinguish them. But I also think it gives us this kind of level of insight into where specific symptoms are coming from. So you might lose motivation without necessarily losing the ability to experience pleasure. They might be coupled in some people and not in others. These are actually sort of symptom distinctions as well. So when, for example, you lose the ability to experience positive things, which is a kind of an anhedonia, loss of experience of pleasure in the world, you can see how that would lead to motivation deficits. But you can also see how motivation deficits might be present independently of that. You might really like something, but just not be able 
to have the drive, have the ability to expend the effort to get there. So, I mean, one way of thinking about mental health is that mental health, there, there are positive feedback elements and negative feedback elements, right? So the negative feedback elements would push you back towards some equilibrium, but the positive feedback elements would trap you in some cycle where you lose your ability to get pleasure and then that impacts your motivation. So then you don't go out and get the pleasure that would re-educate your dim view of the world. And so are therapies in part a way of digging you out of those kind of positive feedback circles? Yes. One of the first parts of so many different therapies is a kind of behavioral activation, which is a re-engagement with the world around you to ensure that someone sort of has a life in place that would give them social contact if they don't have social contact, some kind of novelty if they haven't experienced something new, just a, a reinvigoration of connection with the rest of the world. But that's not all. It tends to then continue from there. That's like a first step, a necessary step to many different forms of therapy. I also think that this is sometimes the impetus, the kind of kick that certain effective psychiatric drugs can give someone. So, you know, you do certainly hear people say, I wasn't able to engage with therapy, but then I started taking antidepressants. I started to be able to engage with things more generally. And then I could do therapy. So a, a way, one route in for some people is effective medications. Well, that was probably the most fascinating thing in the book is that I didn't realize that that's how these antidepressant medications work is that I think the myth is that, oh, wow, like, let's just give you more serotonin. But it's really that you are now pushed off to a different learning trajectory, right? And that's also why it takes time for them to yield results. I would argue that's why it takes time. That's also why it doesn't work for some people. So the, the theory that I propose in the book, or in fact, it's not my proposal, but based on many years of evidence from my field, from cognitive neuroscience, is that what antidepressants do, although they raise serotonin levels acutely, immediately, they take a while to affect people's mood, weeks. And the reason for that is that over those weeks, having raised serotonin levels enables people to learn differently about the world around them. So you can measure this in quite easy sort of emotion perception tasks. How happy does this face look? How angry or sad does this face look? And show people faces on a spectrum. And everyone will naturally have some place at which they say an ambiguous face is, is negative. And depressed people tend to be more negatively biased in that assessment. But everyone, whether you're depressed or not, after a single dose of antidepressants, shifts that emotional bias towards the positive end, perhaps from negative more to neutral, perhaps from neutral more to positive, depending on where you started out. So this is a mechanism, a cognitive mechanism for what antidepressants are doing from the get-go. And which for some people, if that was something that they had a problem with originally, perhaps something that inspired or that caused their depression to begin with, then that is a really useful thing to change. And I do think that there are some people for whom these changes do not have a clinical effect and that the reason for that is that they're not targeting the right mechanisms for those people, which is why we need different types of treatments for different people. Right. So uh, it sounds like 
if you're depressed, then you're manifesting some kind of confirmation bias, right, in the way in which you process information. So if you are in threat mode, you see a neutral face and you want to err on the side of caution and you say, oh, this person doesn't like me. But, but then you, you don't really try to falsify that hypothesis, right? You'll probably just stay away from that person and then you'll never find out whether in fact your interpretation was inaccurate, right? Because you won't then say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Let's go hang out with this person and see if they really are mad at me. Uh, and what the- Yeah, why would you risk it? Yeah, but what the antidepressant does is it then says, okay, let's move that more towards a neutral interpretation. And then that would presumably- lead you in, to engage in, in behaviors that might disconfirm your prior. Is that one way to think about it? Yes, I think it is. I think thinking of antidepressants not as, you know, a cure, a kind of, you take one, you feel better, but actually it's in their interaction with the environment that they are effective for some people. They are a way of changing the way you perceive and learn about the world. So they're not working in a bubble. They're working in the context of you, your brain processes, but also your experiences, your environment. So then you would have to then, after taking the antidepressant, go out into the world and engage in this kind of hypothesis testing in order for it to be truly effective. Maybe. I think the kind of the hope or perhaps the theory is that we engage in this information processing interpretation just constantly all the time, even when we're on our own. But I would agree with you that a, a good experiment would be to test if you could improve efficacy, improve speed that they're working, if you actually are presenting people with more of those challenges. Now, for the non-pharmaceutical therapies, you distinguish between cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness therapy. Now, both of them involve some kind of change to one's interpretive framework, but they operate in different ways. What's the key difference there? So... I talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness as two examples of psychological therapy that work via rather different means. And that means they might work for different people. So the example I give, which was because for that particular chapter, I spoke very in depth with one of my colleagues who's a clinical psychologist, Dr. Caitlin Hitchcock. And she was talking to me about how different patients respond differently to CBT and mindfulness. So for example, people who are quite good at having an internal monologue, if you say to them, well, why did you think that? They can tell you. For a long time, clinical psychologists basically assumed this was people, but it's really not. Some people are really not able to answer that question. If you just sat them down and said, what are you thinking about right now? They might not be able to give you a kind of narrative response. That makes engaging with CBT enormously difficult. It defeats the whole purpose. How can you identify patterns in your thoughts if you can barely say what exactly your thoughts were? And there also is probably a sort of personality element of whether that is the best way to access these large schemas, these moods about the world, is to drill down into what your individual experiences are. Try very, very hard to pay attention to these maladaptive thought patterns with changing them might be useful. So in other words, you already have to have some level of metacognition before you can start in on CBT. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there's a you know, there's very clearly a set of people for whom the CBT is very effective. And there is also a set of people for whom it's not very effective. And for some of those people, I think a kind of 
nicely, radically different approach is something like mindfulness, where you don't necessarily say, well, why don't we reinterpret your thoughts about this negative thing that's happened to you? You just say, okay, it's bad, but so what? So what? What is really the kind of importance of that? And you take it up a level and often you work on particular techniques like distancing yourself from your initial reactions to things, taking an outsider's perspective on it. So it's a kind of, it's a different brain training, let's say, of how to deal with emotional problems. Now, you also talk about lifestyle, exercise, sleep, and and food. And it's been said that exercise is probably the most, right, the cheapest and, and most effective therapy out there for people with, well, mild mental health problems. It's certainly not going to probably cure your schizophrenia, right? But it definitely helps. Why is it so effective? Is it because of the physiological effects or is it because it leads to a sense of efficacy to, to some degree? So I really wanted to include a, a discussion about lifestyle treatments for mental health, because I think sometimes in a science book, which mine really is, it's a neuroscience book, you get stuck on what you might think of as biological treatments. I talk about psychedelics, I talk about antidepressant drugs, I talk about brain stimulation. I guess these intuitively target the brain. There's no surprise. But actually, psychological therapy and lifestyle treatments also, when they're affecting your mental health, they're affecting your mental health via your brain, also your body, obviously. But I think getting that point across was really important to me. And when it comes to exercise, I think there's a kind of diversity of mechanisms that are working. And some of those mechanisms, I think, are purely physiological. Some of them are perceptions of our own physiology. I gave the example of, for example, reinterpreting fast heartbeats in panic disorder. You can immediately see how exercise would be useful and someone with problems interpreting their physical signals from the body. And then some of them are probably much more at a kind of higher cognitive level where perhaps you're having a feeling of achievement, a feeling of engagement, maybe it's increasing socialization. So there might be, you know, it might be working at multiple levels. And it is seemingly quite effective for depression. I suppose one real caveat I should give is that while we're aware of various possible mechanisms, you can see neurogenesis in animals, we don't really know why it works, when it works. We haven't drilled down into sort of, for people who for whom exercise really helps their depression, why? What exactly is it changing in that individual? And I think this is a really important area of exploration. I know labs at this exact moment that are trying to run randomized control trials mechanistically to, un- to better understand that. I think it would be so useful for recommending who should take exercise, understanding it from a purely scientific level, perhaps figuring out when to combine it with other interventions, and maybe even identifying who would really not benefit from it. Yep. I use chore therapy, right? So, you know, it's like emptying the dishwasher for some reason provides me with a sense of efficacy that helps me to move on to bigger projects, right? So maybe that'll be the new prescription. But you also mentioned psychedelics. And I'm going to see emptying the dishwasher trials all over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Okay, they can come over and do it in my house, right? But you mentioned psychedelics. And, and psychedelics, of course, include alcohol. And I, I did a podcast where the guest said that alcohol is the most easily accessible neurotoxin you know, out there and it, administered in, in small doses, right, can have 
wonderfully positive effects on your mental health. I mean, the key is in, in small doses. But with psychedelics, there's this boom now in psychedelic therapy. You, you said you, you tried psilocybin. I tried it also, but many years ago. And w- what I found it to be effective at was to force you to question a lot of your inferences that you took for granted. And it seems like that's a way you could potentially reboot your interpretation of the world. Is this sort of something that that more and more neuroscientists are thinking about? Yeah, I think your explanation about reinterpreting your beliefs about the world, perhaps weakening really unhelpful beliefs about the world, that's definitely, it's become a, a common refrain for what psychedelics might be doing. I do think psychedelics are a very interesting line of research in terms of mental health treatment. I also think that we are making perhaps some mistakes as a field and as a society in how we approach them. We've thrown out the rule book in many ways. They need to be compared with and studied with the same amount of robustness as other kinds of psychiatric drugs. They are a medication, they are pharmaceutical intervention. And in the same way that I think in the past decades, people have looked at selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the most common form of antidepressant very closely to make sure, are they safe in all populations? How do they work? When do they work? Do they work? With a fine tooth comb, I think we need to have the same level of robustness when we study psychedelic drugs. And I don't think that has always been the case. People have been excited. Excitement is great. I love it when people are excited about my field, about mental health neuroscience. But I also think we need to approach it with a healthy level of skepticism sometimes because there are very important considerations in these experiments, one of which is the placebo effect. So with an antidepressant, not impossible, but very difficult to tell whether you've taken an antidepressant or a placebo. Over the course of weeks, you might be able to because of side effects, but you might just be expecting those side effects. And so you could experience them on placebo anyway. It's pretty good for a double-blind randomized control trial. Psychedelics are bad for a double-blind randomized control trial. If in one possibility, so they sometimes use a very small dose, but you kind of know if you're high. That's the problem. Often they don't use drug-naive participants. That makes it even worse because you know what it feels like to have taken a larger dose of psychedelics, a smaller dose of psychedelics. So what we need, and this is slowly starting to happen, is more studies with really good active control groups groups where maybe the active group are given a different drug, maybe a psychoactive drug, maybe a drug that makes you feel good, but not a drug with the same pharmacological properties as psychedelics. That is a better way of starting to isolate psychedelics and their mechanism and when they work, who they work for, et cetera. Now, look, people don't seek out help for their mental health unless they're unhappy, right? Unless they they feel terrible. But if we think about mental health as balance and having some element of accuracy about interpretation of the world, then shouldn't we see an equal number of people seeking out help who are overly half full people instead of just the overly half empty people? I mean, we don't talk about mental kind of unhealth in the other direction. Should we be be thinking about that to some degree? What do you mean by the other direction? Like, what would that look like, do you think? Someone who's insensitive to negative 
feedback or insensitive, right, to punishment signals, right? So no matter what happened, like Pangloss, right? We live in the best of all possible worlds, right? There's no possibility that I'm going to fail or that I'm going to experience some kind of negative situation. Yeah, there definitely are outliers on that kind of optimism domain, on the, you know, refusal to learn from negative consequences domain. And you're right, they don't often end up before a clinician because they don't think they have a problem. Sometimes they end up before a clinician when other people think they have a problem. So you see this occasionally in, for example, people with antisocial behavior, and they might not want to be treated clinically, but other people might want them to be treated clinically. You also see this sometimes, some aspects of this other extreme in bipolar patients when they're in a manic episode. Now, during my PhD, I was speaking about bipolar disorder with my supervisor, and he said, oh, you know, I would be very careful about doing any experiments on mania because no one will ever show up for your experiments. <laughs> you know, they'll sign up, but then when they're in a manic episode, they're not going to come because they're going to have way more interesting things to do than come be with a boring scientist in line of brain scanner. So I was like, oh, interesting. And that kind of practical advice, I think, is a reflection of why we in fact, know very little about mania compared to other symptoms in psychiatric disorders. We know much more about the depressive side of bipolar illness than we know about the manic side neurally, and reasons like that are probably why. But that's all a very long-winded way of saying. I do think there are some examples of people who are on the other extreme, perhaps in euphoria, perhaps in optimism, but it is taken to such an extreme that it can be very impairing, a manic episode there are positive aspects of it, but there are also really profoundly negative aspects to it. So where do you see the future of neuroscience? I mean, do you think that it's going to imperialistically overwhelm, right, physiology even? I mean, do you think that the term psychosomatic will disappear from our language as we begin to understand the connections between the physiological and psychological? I'm very torn about that because... Psychosomatic is a pejorative term. So for that reason, I would be happy to see it disappear. But I also think it is a real phenomenon, just might not be named in the best way. It's such an important phenomenon that I think we all experience psychosomatic symptoms and we all should understand the role of these psychosomatic processes, i.e. cognitive processes happening in the brain that are influencing our physical experience. I think it's crucial. And somehow we have this word, we use it kind of negatively, and yet we often don't acknowledge the importance of these processes for all of us. So we get the kind of worst of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, this term mental health now, I mean, I, I've heard it used in so many ways. People say, oh yeah, I've got mental health. And <laughs> they mean the opposite, or people are taking mental health days. Do you think that this heightened awareness of mental health, which you point out is the probably the number one cause of suffering in the world health-wise, do you think that's a healthy development or does this heightened awareness of mental health kind of harm our mental health because we start seeing threats to our mental health everywhere? I think it is a mixed development. There are many positive aspects People who need help are able to identify the fact that they have a disorder that's impairing their life and they're able to get help. That's a really good aspect of mental health awareness. I also think that it has probably been biased towards 
things like feeling a little bit anxious, feeling a little bit stressed. We all experience that. That doesn't mean that we all experience a mental health disorder. So what I worry about with mental health awareness campaigns is that sometimes they paint everything with the same brush. So actually someone in a major depressive episode, someone catatonic, they're in the same category as someone who is a slightly anxious person on a day-to-day basis, as I am. I'm in that lower category. And I think we shouldn't be considering all these problems as something that would be fixed by awareness. Mental health is something that we all experience. Mental illness is not. It is something that some of us experience sometimes. And those times, it's critical to get those people the resources, the treatments that they need. And sometimes mental health awareness campaigns get in the way because it makes something like anxiety seem like a universal phenomenon rather than anxiety disorders as a specific phenomenon that some people really suffer from and need help for. Well, Camilla, thanks so much for joining me. Wonderful book called The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health, and it's a really wonderful overview of these new developments in neuroscience. Talk again soon. Thank you so much, Greg. It was great to chat with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.